Welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm David Tate, and this is part 35 in our series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. And I've got some good news for you, because today we're actually hopping into the text of Matthew chapter 11. If you recall, verse 1 of this chapter actually fit better into the previous section of the book, and so we covered verse 1 of chapter 11 back when we talked about chapter 10. So today what we're going to do is we're going to cover verses 2 through 19, and that gets me a little bit excited because we actually get to talk about John the Baptist today, and that's somebody we haven't really talked about in quite a while. If you remember back in chapter 10, what we just covered is Jesus basically sent out his 12 apostles on their mission to the children of Israel. Like Joshua leading the 12 tribes into the promised land to conquer it from the Canaanites, so Jesus sent out his 12 apostles into the land to go about a new form of conquest, right? They're forming a new Israel from the Canaan that Israel has become, and they're preaching the kingdom of God to everybody that they reach and they're getting to do all these miracles, do all this stuff, but they get to expect some pushback and some persecution. That's what we talked about in chapter 10, the disciples and the apostles going about their mission. And what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 11 is that Jesus himself is also going to go about a mission. And while the apostles are going and doing their thing, Jesus is going to go and do his thing as well. And as he goes amongst the people of Israel, Jesus is going to encounter the people and what he's going to see there is he's going to see something that is very reflective of the time period of the judges that we see in the Old Testament, right? Where there's no king in Israel and everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes, right? Jesus is going to look at the people and he's going to see that in many ways they are like sheep without a shepherd, right? They are being oppressed by their leaders and they have nobody to really latch themselves to. And as a result, they are simply doing whatever they want. And we're going to begin to see a lot of those trends coming up in these verses that we're covering today. The section we cover today can really be broken down into three different subsections, right? We got verses 2 through 6, verses 7 through 15, and then verses 16 through 19. And the way these sections break down is like this. Each section begins with a question, right? So our first section is going to begin with the question that the disciples of John the Baptist are going to be asking Jesus. And they're going to ask him, are you the coming one? Right, And then the second section is going to begin with Jesus turning to the crowds and asking them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see whenever you were going and looking for John the Baptist? Right, And then the third section is going to actually be Jesus still talking to the crowds, and he's going to ask more of a rhetorical question, to what shall I compare this generation? Right, And really, each of these three sections is focusing on the identity of somebody. The first section is talking about the identity of Jesus. The second section is detailing the identity of John the Baptist. And the third generation is detailing the identity of the generation that Jesus and John the Baptist both ministered to. And so that's what we're dealing with here. And also in three of those sections, we're going to have this theme of coming, right? C-O-M-I-N-G, the word coming, right? In the first section, uh, the disciples of John the Baptist are going to ask if Jesus is the coming one. Right? And then whenever Jesus turns to the crowds, he is going to communicate to them that John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to come. And then whenever Jesus is still talking to the crowds in that third section, he's going to talk about how both he and John came to the people and they responded in a way that they probably should not have. Right, And so we've got all these themes going on in these three different sections. And the beginning of what we're talking about today, verse 2, is going to reference the deeds of Christ. And the end of what we're talking about today in verse 19 is going to be talking about the deeds of wisdom. This is the Greek word ergon, right? And so in many ways, the th things we're talking about today, I'm just really highlighting structural stuff here just to show you that we're talking about just one really contained unit here that is bookended with the idea of deeds, works, right? And in between, we're learning about who exactly Jesus and John and the current generation that they're talking to are. 
That being said, let's actually hop in and let's see what exactly happens here. This is our first section. Now when John in prison heard of the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now, I really do like these verses a whole lot here, but I'll be the first to admit that these are some verses that have stumped a lot of people over time, right? And the main reason it stumps a lot of people is because the way that the Gospels begin, and this is every single one of the four Gospels, the way that the four Gospels begin is with John the Baptist being really the first person to identify who Jesus is, right? John the Baptist's whole purpose is to identify the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. But then the way that this story begins is with John saying, are you the Messiah? And that's led some people to a lot of confusion, right? Is John facing some doubt here? What is John going through? Well, we're going to talk about that today. And I actually think that these verses right here are probably going to be the things we spend the most time on just because there's so much rich stuff going on just in these verses. Um, and so let's just walk through it. Now, when John in prison heard of the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples Right? So whenever we're talking about John here, we're not talking about John, the son of Zebedee. We're not talking about John, the apostle. We're talking about John, the Baptist, right? The John who is in prison. The last time we saw John in the gospel of Matthew was actually in Matthew chapter three and four, whenever he was preaching about Jesus. And then whenever he baptized Jesus, well, some time has passed. And now we see that John the Baptist is in prison. Later on, we're going to learn more context about how exactly this came about. But for right now, all you need to know is that John himself is in prison. There also seems to be this um, understood, like, like the, there seems to be this expectation that Matthew is placing on his original audience that they were familiar enough with about who John the Baptist is that they would have understood that John the Baptist did eventually go into prison, right? He doesn't have to explain that detail right here. He just assumes that his audience knows. Oh yeah, remember John the Baptist? Well, you know, he was in prison. He sent word to Jesus from prison, right? So John the Baptist, he's in prison and he hears about the deeds of Christ, right? Once again, to contrast deeds of Christ by deeds of wisdom at the end of the section. He hears about the deeds of Christ, right? He hears about the things that Jesus is doing. And he sends word by his disciples and he says to them, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for someone else? Right? And so John is puzzled, right? He is very confused. He's saying, well, Jesus, are you the one who is to come? And by that, he's referring to the Messiah or shall we wait for someone else? And like I mentioned, this is the thing that really begins to puzzle people a whole lot here because John the Baptist is the one who told everybody that Jesus is the coming one. And so they wrestle through the idea, is John in a state of doubt here? What is John exactly going through? And I think sometimes people will try to get rid of all the doubt altogether. I don't know if that's necessarily what we're supposed to do. I think that maybe John being a human you know, just, just a man, I think he might be experiencing some doubt, but I think we can get some better insight into what's really at the root of his question if we actually go look at what Matthew's already told us about John's ministry back in Matthew chapter 3. If you go to back, if you go to Matthew chapter 3, we get to see that in many ways, John the Baptist was your classic definition of a hellfire brimstone preacher, right? His whole thing was that he was a prophet out in the wilderness preaching these very intense messages and it drew a crowd. And we get to see in Matthew chapter three, exactly what John said about Jesus. And this is what he said. He said, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy spirit and 
with fire. Now notice what John the Baptist says. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So whenever John the Baptist talked about Jesus' arrival, he talked about Jesus' arrival in terms of judgment, right? This was a guy who was going to show up with a winnowing fork. This was a guy who was going to separate the wheat from the chaff. This was the guy who was going to baptize not only with the Holy Spirit, but with fire, right? John the Baptist talked about Jesus as almost being a John the Baptist 2.0, but actually a greater John the Baptist, right? A guy who came in fiery judgment. That's how John the Baptist talked about Jesus. And then notice what gave rise to John the Baptist's question. It was when he heard about the deeds of Jesus, right? So if you're just paying close attention to the details here, I think Matthew's trying to explain to us why John is so confused, right? He hears about what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus is doing doesn't necessarily line up with what John expected Jesus to do. What we have to realize is that John did have special insight into who Jesus was and to what exactly Jesus was going to do, but in many ways, he was still largely in the dark in comparison to the exact nature of Jesus' ministry. Really, the only person who truly seemed to understand that at the time was Jesus himself. And so John the Baptist set up this whole idea of Jesus being this man who showed up in fiery judgment to wage war and deliver the people from oppression. But then he hears what Jesus is doing and Jesus isn't doing that. Jesus isn't getting together an army. Jesus isn't turning on the Romans. Jesus isn't even, like, you know, like, like where's his winnowing fork, right? That seems to be John's question. Where is your winnowing fork? Where is your crown? And if you think about it, John the Baptist is the forerunner to the Messiah, right? And if the Messiah is the king, then John, his forerunner, is probably wondering, why am I still in prison, right? If you are the conquering king, then why are these oppressive governments still in charge? Why is it that the government of Israel itself is still so corrupt that they have me locked up in their prison, right? He is currently locked up in Herod Antipas's prison. There is another king, another tetrarch in charge of the land of Israel. And he says, Jesus, are you the coming one, right? Like, 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 I don't know if it's him doubting Jesus' identity, but he's more just voicing his confusion concerning that identity, right? Are you the coming one we expected or are we looking for somebody else, right? Did I misunderstand exactly what you came to do, right? Where is your winnowing fork, Jesus? Where is the judgment? Where is the deliverance, right? Why am I your leading servant? Why am I your forerunner? Why am I wasting away in prison? That's what he's confused about. He hears about what Jesus is doing and his excitement about what Jesus is doing turns into confusion. And so Jesus answers and I, what I want you to notice here is that it says Jesus answered, but in many ways, it doesn't seem like Jesus overtly answers, right? Really, it seems like John is looking for a yes or no answer. And Jesus doesn't give him that. Jesus doesn't say yes or no. Instead, Jesus answers and he says to him, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now, if you read that, you might get a little bit frustrated with what Jesus does here. Because once again, notice what gave rise to John the Baptist's question. John the Baptist asked this question because he had already heard about what Jesus was doing. And so he says, hey, Jesus, I've heard of what you're doing. Are you the one who is to come? And Jesus doesn't answer John's question directly. Instead, he responds by telling him the things that he is doing. And if you're just looking at this, you might get frustrated because you're saying, Jesus, you just responded to John by telling him information that he already knew, 
right? John already knows the things you're doing. That's why he's confused. But somebody who is more familiar with the Old Testament scriptures and somebody who is more immersed with the first century Jewish mindset behind these things will clearly pick up on the fact that Jesus is actually answering John the Baptist's question here. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's doing a thing which we call stringing pearls, right? Stringing pearls is the idea of just quoting different passages in scripture and tying them together, right? That's what Jesus is doing here. And he's he's not quoting things directly, but he's alluding to several teachings that are found in the book of Isaiah, which many people have called the fifth gospel, right? If you go back 700 years before the time of Christ, there was this prophet named Isaiah ministering to the people of Judah during the time of the divided kingdom. And during this time period, Isaiah made all these different prophecies against the people at that time period, but he also predicted all these things that would happen in the days and years and months and centuries and millennia to come, right? Isaiah talked about these things, and much of the stuff that Isaiah talked about was messianic in nature. And to just name a few that relate to what Jesus is talking about here, um, let me just read some to you. Isaiah chapter 29, verses 18 and 19. Isaiah says this, On that day the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of darkness and thick darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in Yahweh, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Now, in Isaiah chapter 29, the main thing Isaiah is referring to is not the literal blind seeing and not the literal deaf hearing, but he's more so referring to the idea of the spiritually blind and the spiritually deaf hearing and seeing, right? It's the idea that these people who were once in spiritual darkness are going to gain vision. Well, Jesus is kind of alluding to that here whenever he talks about the physical blind seeing and the physical deaf hearing, right? Because Jesus is doing this physically to people, but... It's also happening spiritually as well. There are people who are walking in darkness who have seen a great light. If you recall, Matthew quoted that prophecy also from the book of Isaiah uh, back whenever he talked about Jesus moving up to Galilee, right? Isaiah chapter 35, say to those who say to those with an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. So this one is probably what Jesus has even more in mind, right? Because there's several things that Jesus mentions right here that are directly mentioned in Isaiah, right? Eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will eat like a deer. Well, Jesus refers to a plenty of that right here, just in verse 5. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The deaf hear, right? All of those are in Isaiah chapter 35. But one thing I want you to notice in Isaiah 35 is what it is that leads to those things happening. Isaiah says, God will come with a vengeance. The recompense of God will come but he will save you, right? And then the eyes of the blind will be opened. So in the original context of Isaiah, it is God's arrival that results in the blind seeing and the deaf hearing and the lame walking. Well, right here, John says, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for someone else? Well, Jesus responds and he says, look at what's happening here. And if you're familiar with Isaiah, it's almost like he's telling John, yes, I am the one who is to come, but I'm even more than what you expected right? I am more than simply the Messiah. I am actually God who has come to save his people, right? Because that's the original context of Isaiah. And he gets this point across in another way, because there's several things that Jesus mentions here that aren't mentioned in Isaiah, right? He talks about the lepers being cleansed. He talks about the dead being raised up, 
Well, Isaiah doesn't mention lepers and he doesn't mention resurrections or anything like that, but Jesus does. And so in many ways, the things that Jesus is saying is communicating that he is going above and beyond what the prophets predicted. Not only is he doing the things that the prophets said, but he is something greater than what the people expected. He's not simply the Messiah, but he is in some way God coming to his people, right? Remember what Matthew called him? Emmanuel, God with us. Right. And so he's more in that way, but he's also doing more things. He's healing the sick. Right. He is taking lepers and he's cleansing them. Right. He is taking the dead and he's raising them up. Jesus is saying, not only am I fulfilling what the prophets said about the Messiah, but I'm doing much more than simply that. But let's hop down even further. Isaiah 42. This is one of the clearly messianic passages that we read in the book of Isaiah. It's one of Isaiah's servant songs. He says, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will also take hold of you by the hand and guard you. And I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who inhabit darkness from prison. I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Once again, notice that it is Yahweh who is doing all these things. And I know that somebody who's originally hearing Jesus saying these things could say, well, maybe it is Yahweh doing it through his servant. And to be fair, that is originally how the original readers of Isaiah would have interpreted it, right? They were not expecting the Messiah to be Yahweh in the flesh. They would have thought that it is Yahweh accomplishing these things through his Messiah. But nevertheless, there's a consistent trend here that Jesus is quoting from things that the Bible explicitly attributes to Yahweh himself. One thing I do want to highlight with this passage, though, is that it does mention... Uh, it does mention like the eyes being like the blind eyes being opened and stuff like that, but there's other things that um, that Isaiah mentions here that Jesus does not. Right, Isaiah right after saying to open the blind eyes, he says to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who inhabit darkness from the prison. Well, we just learned that John is in prison, and so if there was anything that could comfort John the Baptist, it might be mentioning that I am here to free the people in prison, but Jesus explicitly goes out of his way to not mention that. We have one more, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Jesus actually quotes this whenever he's rejected from Nazareth. The Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God. Well, you notice here that Isaiah mentions to bring good news to the afflicted. Okay, well, Jesus mentions that as well, right? He says that I am here, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, right? He is referring to Isaiah 61. But Isaiah 61, like Isaiah 42, immediately follows up these messianic predictions with the prediction that the Messiah will proclaim release to the captives and freedom to their prisoners, right? So there's two passages right there that Jesus cites the things that he is doing but then he also omits things that he's not doing, right? He is not here for the day of vengeance, and he's not necessarily here right now to proclaim release to the captives and the prisoners. Well, for John hearing this, he's getting his answer, right? He's hearing what Jesus is doing, and Jesus is saying, John, you've heard what I was doing, now I need you to truly hear what I'm doing, right? Remember the prophets, remember what they said, right? He's affirming that John is correct. He is the one who is to come, but his ministry might look a little bit different than John might have expected. And I think this comes even into greater picture uh, whenever you realize that the people in the first century, right, they did interpret 
Isaiah's passage like this. We actually have evidence of this from one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that was discovered during the amazing finds uh, back really over the last few decades, right? Well, I guess it's almost a century ago now, <laughs> um, but very recent finds, the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? A lot of those documents that we've discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they describe, I mean, like a lot of them are first century documents that describe what exactly the people believed at this time period. And one of those documents, you can go look it up. It's called 4Q521, um, or it's also just known more broadly as the Messianic Apocalypse. It actually provides a description of what at least the Qumran community believed the Messiah would do. And a lot of the things that it cites are very similar to the things that Jesus himself recites right here. This is what the Messianic Apocalypse says. The heavens and the earth will listen to his Messiah and none therein will stray from the commandments of the holy ones. Over the poor, his spirit will hover and will renew the faithful with his power. And he will glorify the pious on the throne of the eternal kingdom. He who liberates captives, restores sight to the blind, straightens the bent, forever I will cleave to the hopeful and in his mercy. For he will heal the wounded and revive the dead and bring good news to the poor. Whenever you read that document, 4Q521, you actually get to see things that the first century audience associated with the Messiah that wasn't even mentioned in Isaiah, right? Isaiah never mentioned anything about the dead being raised up, but 4Q521 did. And Jesus chose to include that whenever he told John the Baptist what was going on. He says the dead are raised up, so he includes that. But 4Q521, kind of like Isaiah, it also mentions the fact that he will liberate the captives. And Jesus once again leaves that out. And so what are we supposed to do with this information? I think what we see is that Jesus isn't giving John any new information because like we said already, John had already heard of the deeds that Jesus was doing, right? And so in responding, Jesus is not giving John any new information. Instead, what Jesus is doing is he's giving him context by which to better interpret that information, right? Jesus is quoting passages that John would be familiar with, whether it be the passage from Isaiah or passages from the Dead Sea Scroll community, right? If you remember, John the Baptist kind of grew up in that area, right? He lived in the wilderness. That's where the Dead Sea Scroll community was from, right? And so it's very possible John the Baptist was familiar with these teachings and Jesus quoting stuff that he knows that his cousin would be familiar with, right? He's giving him context to better understand these things. And the things that Jesus specifically leaves out whenever he responds to John, is he leaves out the parts about judgment, right? And that's something that Jesus is going to do, not just here, but he's going to do it later on, whenever he's in Nazareth, and whenever he quotes the passage that I said earlier, right? Isaiah 61, when he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, right? He says that he is here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then in Nazareth, he's going to stop right there. But if you keep reading in Isaiah, it says, and the year of judgment and recompense for our God, right? So Jesus consistently throughout his ministry leaves off the judgment passages whenever he quotes scripture, right? And what he's doing here is he's communicating that his current ministry fits into a larger program, right? Yes, the judgment will one day come, but the time has not yet arrived, right? Jesus is saying, yes, John, I am the one who is to come. I am the person that Isaiah prophesied about. I am doing the things that Isaiah prophesied about, but I'm only doing some of them right now right? Jesus is affirming to John, yes, one day the winnowing fork will be in my hand. Yes, one day I will baptize with fire. Yes, one day I will be that person of judgment. But today is not that day, right? That is not what right here and right now is for. At the same time, though, we have to recognize that Jesus' ministry of mercy, right, the ministry that he's currently going about, is in many ways still a ministry of judgment. This is something that we're going to see later on in this very chapter whenever Jesus renounces some of the cities that have rejected him. 
Because Jesus doesn't come to judge on this instance, but he does come and as a result, judgment follows, right? John's going to talk about this in the Gospel of John, right? Not John the Baptist. This is the Apostle John we're talking about now, right? He says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son into the world so that anybody who believed in him might not perish but have eternal life, right? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him, right? So when you read the Gospel of John, John is clarifying the same thing that Jesus is clarifying right here, right? He's saying, I'm not here for judgment. I'm here for salvation. I'm here for mercy, However, judgment does follow whenever people reject Jesus. That's what we're going to see later on in this chapter, right? Jesus clarifying to John the Baptist, I'm here for mercy right now. I'm not here for judgment. But does that mean that nobody's getting judged? Well, no, people are getting judged, but they're judging themselves, right? They're judging themselves by rejecting Jesus. One day as Christians, we believe Jesus will come back. And when he does come back, he will have that winnowing fork in his hand. And he will come in that final judgment. But what Jesus is communicating to John the Baptist right now is he saying, dude, now is not that time, right? Now is not the time of judgment. Now is the time of mercy. Now is the time of liberty. Now is the time of salvation. But at the same time, whenever he's speaking of liberty here, he's not talking about liberty for the captives, right? He goes out of his way to leave out the fact that the Messiah comes to proclaim liberty to the captives. And I think this is where Jesus is communicating a hidden message really to John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist is wondering, hey, if I'm your forerunner, why am I in prison? And Jesus says, well, because I'm not setting the prisoners free this time, John. Right? And so he's communicating to John that he's going to die in prison. But then remember what Jesus added in there? The dead are raised up. Right? So there's really this whole hidden message really behind what Jesus says here. He is telling John, yes, I am the one who is to come. But my ministry is going to look different than you might have expected. And if you're expecting to get freed from prison, I hate to break it to you, my cousin but you're not going to. You're going to die in prison because my time has not yet come to be freeing the captives. But don't worry. Even if you die for your faith, you will be raised up on the last day, right? Because I am currently raising people up right here and right now. That's what Jesus is communicating through this. And then that kind of better explains what he's saying in verse six. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Right? Jesus realizes that his ministry is going to be a huge stumbling block to the people of Israel, especially given their expectations concerning the Messiah, right? Messianic expectations in the first century were wide and diverse, right? They're kind of like end times expectations now where, you know, now times we just like have all sorts of different views about the end times. But there were certain things that Jewish people in the first century held pretty unified, like to a unified degree they held about the Messiah. And one of those things was when the Messiah came, he was going to come in judgment against their enemies and that he was going to be this conquering king. And Jesus realizes that's a stumbling block and it's going to mess up a lot of people. And sure enough, as we're going to see over the course of these next few chapters, that's going to be a big factor into why so many people reject Jesus. It's because he's not the Messiah that they expected. We're going to talk about that even more later on in the section we're talking about today, right? People's expectations are going to dictate how they respond to Jesus. And Jesus tells John, blessed is the person who doesn't take offense at me, right? Blessed is the person who doesn't make me conform to their expectations, but allows me to do what God has called me to do, right? That's going to be a big thing that we talk about today, where humans naturally, we try to put God into a box and we try to place these expectations upon God and how he should do things. And how Jesus is responding here is he's saying, you can't do that, right? If God is going to be in a box, it has to be a box he puts himself into, right? And you can't allow your expectations on God to affect 
how you relate to him. You need to allow God to define the terms, right? That's what Jesus says to John the Baptist. He says, John, I'm sorry if I'm not the Messiah you expected, but you were correct. I am the Messiah. Things are going to look a bit different. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And so what Jesus does now as we go into our second section is he's going to use this opportunity to turn to the crowds um, who I guess presumably heard this entire conversation. Jesus is going to turn to the crowds and he's going to use this as an opportunity to talk about John the Baptist, right? Here we just saw these verses where John the Baptist is probably at his most vulnerable. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to clarify that this does not in any way lower his opinion concerning John the Baptist. And so this is what we read. Now, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So here Jesus is going to turn to the multitude that's listening here. And he's going to speak in many ways like a prophet. I mean, that last phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That is practically ripped from the words of Isaiah or from the words of Ezekiel, right? And this is going to be a phrase that Jesus repeats again and again throughout the scriptures. I believe this is the first time he said it though. And so really, this, this is something I really love because right here, um, we, we actually get an opportunity to see what Jesus's opinion about John the Baptist was, right? We've talked a lot about John the Baptist over the course of this study, but we really haven't gotten to see how Jesus views John. We've seen how John views Jesus. And a lot of passages tell us about how John views Jesus. But right here, we actually get to see how Jesus viewed John. And so as the disciples of John are leaving, Jesus turns to the crowds and he says, now that we're talking about John, I want to ask you a question, right? And he begins to challenge the multitude and he begins to ask them, what was it that drew them out into the wilderness to see John, right? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? So there's three rhetorical questions he asks here. Who did they go out to see? Did they want to see a reed shaken by the wind? Did they want to see a man in soft clothing? Or did they want to see a prophet, Right? Um, well, what we're going to see is that John is not either of those first two, but he is the third. Um, but really, all of these are rhetorical questions, and there's really several different ways you could interpret this, and I think Jesus is wording it vague enough to where he might mean a lot of these different ones, right? So whenever he first asks, the first thing he says is a reed shaken by the wind. The idea is that, you know, a reed shaken by the wind, it shakes very easily, right? But you know where you usually don't find reeds? In the wilderness, right? If, if you, like reeds are found by water wilderness, wildernesses are devoid of water, right? And so if you find a reed in a wilderness, it seems to be some sort of spectacle, right? It seems to be something flashy where you're like, whoa, did you hear about the reed in the wilderness? <laughs> Let's go watch that blow. What G Jesus seems to be implying by all these rhetorical questions is he's challenging the people, asking them, did they go to John because they wanted to actually experience a genuine movement from God and because they actually cared about his words or were they simply going for entertainment? Were they going for a spectacle, 
right? That's what the first question is about. A reed shaken by the wind? What did you want, right? Is that what you were looking for? You were trying, you were like, wow, I heard there's a reed out in the wilderness. Let me go see it. But in another way, what Jesus might be alluding to here is actually the Exodus story, right? Because I don't, if you've heard about this or not, I don't know. Um, but the word, like the phrase translated Red Sea, if you go back to the book of Exodus, uh, it actually literally translates to Sea of Reeds, not Red Sea, right? Red Sea is kind of a mistranslation, but it translates into Sea of Reeds. And if you recall, whenever the people of Israel were leaving Egypt, they passed through the Sea of Reeds. And the, the way that the waters spread apart was that a wind blew and slowly stacked them up into piles, right? Uh, to where you had like, you know, a tower to the right, tower to the left, basically, and the people passed in between, right? And so Jesus might be alluding to this, right? Because here you have a reed shaken by the wind, very similar to how the sea of reeds was parted by winds. Okay, well, what Jesus might be alluding to here is what were you going for? Were you wanting to see a new exodus, right? And really it conveys the same idea, right? Because what is the exodus moment? Well, it's about people being delivered from captivity, but it was also accompanied by all these miraculous acts, right? So whether you're talking about a physical reed out in the wilderness, right? It could be a reference to that, which is already kind of a spectacle, but it also could be the sea of reeds parting by wind, which then led the people of Israel out into the wilderness, right? And so Jesus could be alluding to either of those, but really it seems like both of those are conveying the idea of a spectacle. What were you going out into the wilderness to see? Did you just want to see a spectacle? Did you just want to see something miraculous? Did you want to see a new exodus? Did you want to be part of a new exodus generation and see something really cool from God? Okay, well, if it wasn't that, what'd you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you go out in the wilderness to see a man in soft clothing, right? If you just read it just at face value, you can kind of see the humor behind what Jesus is saying. Really, all of this, I think, is supposed to be humorous, but it's in like a scathing humor, right? He's kind of mocking them, right? Why did you go out there, right? Were you simply wanting to see a reed shaken by the wind? Because that sounds kind of silly. Who travels all the way out into the wilderness just to see a reed shaken by the wind? Who travels all the way out into the wilderness because he heard this guy wore some funny clothes? Well, if you remember, that's one of the first things we learned about John the Baptist, right? He wore camel skin right? Okay. Well, Jesus says, did you want to see people in soft clothing? But what he's probably alluding to here is he's probably alluding to Kings. And the reason we know that is because he says, behold, those who wear soft clothing are in Kings palaces, right? He says, so what did you want? Were you wanting a new Exodus? Were you hoping John the Baptist was the Messiah? Were you simply hopping on the hype train? And were you simply trying to go see something new because you wanted to experience a new act of God, right? Is that what you were looking for? Were you simply looking for entertainment? And he says, behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces, right? You don't go into the wilderness to find people with soft clothing. You go out into the wilderness to find people who are living it rough. If you're going out into the wilderness, you don't expect people to be living a life of comfort and luxury. You go to palaces for that. So what did you go out into the wilderness to see? He's trying to challenge their motives. He's saying, why is it that you actually went to John, right? What Jesus is actually kind of doing here uh, is he's giving a little bit of that taste of judgment that John was looking for, right? He's being the winnowing fork, right? He's giving them a little bit of that fire to give them a taste of what that looks like, but he's doing it to challenge them because he knows that once again, people are going to be offended by him. People are going to see him as a stumbling block. And so he's giving them that opportunity to decide where they stand. And he does this through looking at John the Baptist. What did you want? Do you want a spectacle? Did you want to see a reed shaken by the wind? Did you want to see somebody in soft clothing? How about this? Did you want to see a prophet? God's been silent for 500 years. You heard a new prophet was in town. So you went out into the wilderness just to hear what he had to say, right? Jesus is challenging them. But then in this last one, Jesus says, yes, I tell you, he is a prophet and one who is more than a prophet. Jesus says, don't even degrade John by simply calling him a prophet. John was way more than simply a prophet. And so even if you went out there for a prophet 
Well, guess what? You got a lot more than that, right? Jesus communicating to them that if they went out there for a spectacle, if they went out there because they wanted a new exodus, if they wanted out, if they went out there because they wanted a new king, if they went out there because they wanted a new prophet, well, if that's all they were looking for, well, then they far, by far, they underestimated who John actually was. Because yes, John was in many ways initiating a new exodus, right? He was preparing the way for the Lord. If you go read Isaiah chapter 40, the passage that I, that John himself quotes regarding his purpose, right? I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That is exodus-like imagery, right? John was here to prepare the way for a new exodus. John was in many ways preparing the way for a new king, right? A man in soft clothing, right? He said, I am not worthy to even untie his sandal, right? And yes, John was a prophet, but he was more than any of those things. He was more than a person announcing a new exodus. He was more than somebody announcing a new kingdom. He was more than simply a prophet pronouncing the word of God. Jesus says, this is the one about whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He's quoting the book of Malachi, right? If you read your, the Christian Old Testament, this is the final book that we have in the entire Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible is actually structured a little bit differently, but canonically speaking, this is the last book that God spoke through prophets before he went kind of radio silent until the time period of John the Baptist. And these are some of the final words that God said. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Behold, I, Yahweh, am going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a smelter's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and, a, uh, and as a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to Yahweh offerings in righteousness. So if you go to Malachi chapter three, the thing that Jesus himself is quoting well, he's quoting this passage where there is this messenger who is sent to prepare the way for Yahweh, right? Notice what he says. It says, I am going to send my messenger who prepare the way for me, right? It's Yahweh speaking. This messenger is preparing the way for Yahweh. Jesus quotes about John the Baptist and says that John the Baptist was preparing the way for him. Once again, Jesus is claiming to be more than simply a man. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who prepare your way before you. Well, Jesus replaces the word me with you, and he's talking about himself, right? John prepared the way for me, Jesus, and he is the person who Malachi said would prepare the way for Yahweh. But if you keep reading Malachi's passage there, he says that Yahweh is going to come in judgment. But if you notice who Yahweh comes in judgment against, it's not against the enemies of Israel. Rather, it says he will purify the sons of Levi, and he will refine them like gold and silver. Right? Yahweh comes in judgment, but he's refining the people of Israel themselves. He's refining the priests. Well, sure enough, what's Jesus going to do? He is going to show up and he's going to come in judgment against the temple. Right? That's going to be a big thing throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is going to show up. He's going to start flipping tables. He's going to pronounce that the temple itself is going to be destroyed. Right? That's what Jesus is doing. He is saying that he has come to do what Yahweh said he would do to the people. But if you go to the final words of the book of Malachi, you read this, which is something that Jesus is going to allude to again in a second. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land, devoting it to destruction. Right? Those are the final words of the entire Old Testament. The final words that the people of Israel had heard from God up until the 400 years of silence was that God was going to send Elijah the prophet to prepare the way for the return of Yahweh and for the Messiah himself, 
right? So for 400 years, the people are waiting for Elijah to show up. And Jesus is saying right here that John the Baptist was not simply a reed shaken by the wind. He was not simply a man of soft clothing. He was not simply a prophet. He himself was the Elijah to come who prepares the way for the Messiah and prepares the way for Yahweh himself to show up and refine the people of Israel. He says that is who John was. And this actually gives greater explanation to John the Baptist's confusion. Because if you actually go look at Elijah in the Old Testament, you'll see that Elijah himself was a prophet who was very much like John, a hellfire brimstone prophet. He was walking into king's palaces and he was rebuking the people wearing the soft clothing, right? John the Baptist is like Elijah who was not a reed shaken by the wind. He was a reed standing sturdy whenever the wind blew as hard as it could, right? That's who Elijah was. That's who John the Baptist is. But if you remember, Elijah promised future judgment on the people. But Elijah was followed by his disciple Elisha, Elisha, right? E-L-I-S-H-A, right? He was followed by him. And Elisha went about a ministry of mercy, kind of like Jesus. If Elijah had been there to see Elisha's ministry, he probably would have been just as confused as John the Baptist was about Jesus. But this is how it is, right? And so Jesus says, truly I say to you, amongst those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That is amazing. Like, I really want to just stop and reflect on that verse, like that that statement right there for so long. But for the sake of time, we're just going to move on. But I mean, that's just amazing, right? Among those born women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, right? He says John the Baptist is the greatest. He had the privilege of paving the way for the Messiah. He had the privilege of paving the way for Yahweh himself to show up in judgment. However, one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Right? So there's this promise that even those who are the smallest, the least in the kingdom of heaven, will be greater than even John the Baptist. That's apparently the privilege of being in this kingdom. Right, Just to belong to this kingdom immediately makes you better and of higher, like just of greater esteem than anybody else in all civilization. John the Baptist was the greatest of all men. But anybody who makes it into the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, they're greater even than John. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, right? So what Jesus is pointing out here is that with John's imprisonment and ultimate death, an age comes to an end, right? For the longest time, God was sending prophets and prophets and prophets to call the people and like to call the people to repentance and to bring the hearts of the children back to their fathers and to bring everybody back to God. But with John's imprisonment and with John's death, something is about to change. And with John's imprisonment and death, something new is about to begin, right? This is why in many ways people describe John the Baptist as being the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament saint, right? John the Baptist is in many ways this, like, like he's the thing that we, he's the person who weaves the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? The New Testament uniformly begins with John the Baptist, the Old Testament ends with the promise of the coming Elijah. Jesus says that John the Baptist is that Elijah. He is the one who ties the Old Testament and the New Testament together. He is the one who brings an age to an end and brings a new age into Genesis, right? He is the birth of a new age, the age of the kingdom, right? He says that's what John the Baptist was. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Behind Jesus' words here is once again a scathing indictment against the people 
and he's going to follow this up in his rebuke that he's going to say at the end of the section we're going to talk about today, right? That final third subsection. What Jesus is doing is here is he's rebuking the people. He says, why did y'all go out into the wilderness? What were you looking for? Were you simply going out there to be entertained? Did you just want to see a reed shaking in the wind? Do you want to see something just crazy, something spectacular? Did you go out there because you wanted to see a man in soft clothing? You wanted to see somebody who you thought would be the Messiah? Did you go out there simply because you wanted to see a prophet? You heard that God had started speaking again and you want to see who it was? Did you go out there to simply be entertained? Did you delude yourself into thinking that you were being part of this new movement and that you would be any different than the people who came before you? Well, he says, I tell you the truth. Up until the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom suffered violence. And now look where John is. John is in prison. John was a prophet to the current generation, yet this current generation who like to esteem themselves yearning for the Messiah, yearning for a new exodus, yearning for a coming kingdom, yearning for a new prophet, that's what the people were yearning for. Yet what did they do to the prophet who showed up? Like Israel before them, they imprisoned him and they're going to put him to death. They claim to yearn for the kingdom of God, yet they treat the prophets of God just as badly as Israel did in days past. The only king that they serve is themselves, right? Jesus looks at the generation around himself and he realizes that this generation is no better than the time period of the judges. There was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in his own eyes, right? It's a time period of silence, right? It's a time period when they're serving their own hearts. They're doing their own heart's desires. They're saying that they want a new exodus. They're saying they want a new king. They're saying they want a new prophet. But whenever somebody even greater than a prophet shows up before them, what do they do? They put him in prison and they have him put to death. And so he says, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who is to come. And just like y'all put Elijah through all that suffering, and just like Elijah had to rebuke y'all, and as Elijah rebuked y'all for what you did to the prophets, so too John the Baptist imprisonment right now is rebuking you. And so just like the prophets rebuking the people of Israel in days past, so Jesus echoes the words and says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is alluding to the fact that slowly but surely the people's hearts are being darkened, right? And they're becoming spiritually blinded. They're becoming spiritually deaf, right? He replied to John the Baptist and told him, yes, the blind see and the deaf hear. But at the same time, there are people who once were able to see and they are being blinded. And there are people who were able to hear and they're being deafened, right? And that's because they're rejecting what God is doing in their current generation, right? And so yes, Jesus' ministry is a ministry of mercy, but because they're rejecting John the Baptist and because they're rejecting Jesus, judgment is following as a result. Not everybody has ears to hear, but those who do have ears to hear, Jesus says, let him hear, let him discern. And this then leads us to our third subsection where Jesus is going to reflect not on his own identity or on the identity of John the Baptist, but he's going to talk about the current generation. And he says, but to what shall I compare this generation? There's our third question, right? Are you the coming one? right? That was question number one. Question number two was, <clears throat> what did you go out in the wilderness to see? And then question number three, to what shall I compare this generation? You can almost hear Jesus' exasperation. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. 
Right? So once again, Jesus is rebuking the people for how they responded to not only John the Baptist, but also to him. Right? He's talked about his identity. He's talked about John the Baptist's identity. And now this is basically the altar call moment where he turns to the generation, right? And when he says this generation, he's talking about the people in his immediate audience, the people living in Israel this time period, the people that his disciples are currently ministering to. He says, what will I compare you to? And he says, here's the imagery. You're like children in a marketplace who call out to other children and say, we played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Right? Jesus says, that these people went out into the wilderness expecting a new exodus, a new kingdom, a new prophet. But like the first exodus generation, they're going to end up left in the wilderness. Like the people who first inherited the kingdom, they're going to be serving themselves, right? There's no king in Israel. They did what's right in their own eyes. Like the people who first received the prophets, they're going to be disciplined for their sin because they're rejecting the prophets, right? And he says, here's the imagery, Right? You are like children, right? Little children. And this isn't a compliment, right? He says you need to have childlike faith. This is people being childish, right? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children, say, we played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge. You did not mourn. This goes back to what I mentioned earlier about the people placing certain expectations on others and demanding that those people respond to their expectations, right? They had certain ideas about what Elijah was supposed to look like. They had certain ideas of what they expected the Messiah to look like. Whenever they were expecting a new exodus, they had certain ideas of what that would look like, right? It would be plagues raining down on the Romans. Whenever they had expectations about what the kingdom would look like, they had certain expectations of what it would look like, right? They had all sorts of ideas and they started pushing God into those boxes rather than allowing God to speak for himself, right? Here, John the Baptist shows up and he isn't eating or drinking, right? He is the most morally upstanding individual in the world and he abstains from all sorts of things you don't even have to abstain from. And what do they say? He is a demon, right? They have some reason to accuse him of something. Jesus shows up. He does the exact same thing. He calls himself the son of man. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The idea is that Jesus says, you look at John the Baptist and he's doing the exact opposite of me, yet you're not happy with either of us, right? If you were happy with John the Baptist, I would understand you being upset with me. And if you were happy with me, I would understand you being upset with John the Baptist. But John the Baptist and I both came and we did polar opposite things, yet you're not happy with either of us because that demonstrates the hardness of your own heart. And this highlights a key issue with the current generation that Jesus is talking about. The people were more focused on getting what they wanted, and they were less focused on discerning what God was doing, right? They were the children, and they were looking out, and they were saying, hey, we're playing the flute for you, John the Baptist. You should dance. We're playing the flute for you, Jesus. You should dance. We're singing a dirge for you, John the Baptist. You should mourn. We're singing a dirge for you, Jesus. You should mourn, right? These people think they're the ones in charge, right? They are the ones saying, this is what we want. And they're forcing John the Baptist and Jesus to meet their expectations. And Jesus is trying to highlight a sober-minded reality to them. He says, you're not the ones in charge, right? These people are focusing on getting what they want. They're not focusing on what God himself is actually doing. Their judgment is flowing from what they see, from what they deemed right in their own eyes. And Jesus says, what you deem right in your own eyes does not matter. What matters is what God deems right, right? If there is a king to be in Israel, it needs to be Yahweh himself, 
right? You cannot do what is right in your own eyes. They thought they were in charge, and so they started making demands of Jesus and John. What Jesus is communicating is that John and him do not answer to the people or their expectations. The only person they answer to is God. And if God plays the flute, they will dance. If God sings a dirge, they will mourn. They're not responding to what the people tell them to do. They are doing what God has told them to do. And so he tells the people, it's not your job to place your expectations on us. Because if you do that, you're never going to be satisfied, right? Because we're either going to dance when you want us to mourn, or we're going to mourn when you want us to dance. He says, we're not responding to you. We are responding to God. And so what you need to do is you need to recognize the signs of the times. And you need to learn to discern when the true time to dance truly is. And you need to learn to discern when the true time to mourn truly is. Because only if you can discern the times will you be able to discern what God himself is doing, right? That's what Jesus is communicating to them. He says, if you are forcing us to meet your expectations, you're going to be disappointed. But if you use wisdom to discern the times, you will figure out what God is doing and you will understand why he sent John the Baptist to do this. And you will understand why he sent me to do this. You'll understand why John the Baptist came in fury and frustration and anger. And you'll understand why I came in grace and truth and mercy. And so he finishes this by saying, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In many ways, what Jesus is saying here is reflective of what we read about back in the book of Ecclesiastes by Solomon right? This is the passage that you hear usually quoted at funerals and at weddings, right? Quite fittingly, um, when the flute is playing and when the dirge is being sung, right? Solomon says this, there's an appointed time for everything and there's a time for every matter under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. The wise must learn to discern the times. That is exactly what Solomon is trying to argue for in that passage, right? The wise must learn to discern the times, right? We must figure out when is the right time to dance? When is the right time to mourn, right? A lot of the times we just quote that passage in Ecclesiastes as if we can simply pick and choose when's the time to smile, when's the time to frown, when's the time to kill, when's the time to heal. And Solomon's whole point is that whenever man tries to take these things into his own hands, it is meaningless, vanity, chasing after wind. The only person who can decide the times is God himself. And so Jesus says, God is the one we listen to. When he plays the flute, we'll dance. When he sings a dirge, we'll mourn. And unless you learn to hop on that train, and unless you learn to discern the times, and unless you learn to use wisdom, then you yourself will face judgment, right? And so he says, like, so like, just once again, keep in mind this whole structure of this whole passage. It began with Jesus's works, Right? And John the Baptist himself was confused by Jesus' works because he had placed these false expectations on Jesus. Right? And Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest of all the men on earth. But, he says, those in the kingdom of heaven will be even greater. Well, how can you be greater than John the Baptist by being in the kingdom of heaven? Well, the only way you can be in the kingdom of heaven is by hopping on Jesus' train. And by understanding that you do not define what the kingdom of heaven looks like right? Jesus is. God is, 
right? And so you have to look at Jesus's works. And if Jesus's works don't look how you expected the Messiah's works to look, you need to get over it. And you need to learn to discern the times because wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, right? John the Baptist, he was the greatest of all men, yet even he had these false expectations he placed on the Messiah. The crowds were far guiltier of that, right? The crowds, they were placing false expectations on John and the Messiah, right? They didn't understand either of them. And Jesus says, if you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, you need to have wisdom and you need to learn to discern the times and you need to learn to know when's the time to dance and when's the time to mourn. It doesn't matter what you want. It matters what God wants. And if you can learn to respond to God in that way, you too will be greater than John the Baptist. We're going to stop right there. And I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did. I am loving just walking through this gospel with you. And I hope that you're enjoying it as much as I am. Uh, until next time, my name is David Tate. This is Now Let's Be Honest. Be sure to keep a smile on your face. Don't let anybody steal your joy. Remember who you are. And of course, Maranatha. <laughs>